Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jack Fitzpatrick here from Bloomberg Government sitting in for Joe Matthew today. Whole lot to talk about, and we will talk to our panel a little later, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano, about that big news that just broke on your Bloomberg terminal about Harvard President Claudine Gay resigning. Uh, If you saw uh, the clips of her congressional hearing uh, uh, last month, you you know why. Uh, But first, I'm here in the studio with Stephanie Lai, national politics reporter here at Bloomberg, and there are so many things to talk about. We're in the right month to talk about the New Hampshire and Iowa uh, primaries, things are getting rolling. It is a presidential election year. It is officially 2024. Uh, Maybe the first thing I want to touch on with you uh, is two ballot challenges to among others, uh, but Colorado, and in case our listeners missed it over the holidays, Maine uh, have moved to take President Trump off the primary ballot uh, over the constitutional measure that says you cannot be on the ballot if you have engaged in insurrection. Uh, He is banking on the Supreme Court to block that from happening. Stephanie, I'm curious about the political angle of, you know, it seems like Trump is using this, is banking on this as a motivating issue for his supporters. It's so unusual. I'm curious when you can call this a trend. There's two states. I mean, where does this fit into, one, is this a real threat for President, former President Trump in the primary? And two, how is he playing it? Certainly. So, I mean, I guess to start, uh, the cases that we're seeing right now are just a handful of ones that are going to be continuing to come down. And so what we see, how we see the Supreme Court respond is really going to determine how the rest of 2024 plays out. Uh, I guess on one hand, you know, Trump's team has been really great at politicizing these legal issues that he continues to face. Whenever, you know, an indictment had come down, uh, we had seen them really make the point that, you know, Washington, Democrats, everyone's out to get him. They're trying to stop him. And they've been using this to really energize his base because their belief is that they have the votes to really win. But it's just a matter of getting people to come out and having these legal cases continue to make news to put him, you know, in front of TVs all day for, you know, months on end. It really just does help his political case. Well, he is ahead, uh, but I want to get into where he's ahead, how much he's ahead. Uh, Among early states, do you have a view on where the most legitimate challenge is coming from? There's been so much back and forth in New Hampshire on, we'll get into the details of Chris Sununu saying Chris Christie should drop out to sort of make room for Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Is it New Hampshire? Is it Ron DeSantis's push in Iowa? Is there a credible threat in the Republican primary anywhere to Donald Trump? 
You know, at this moment, uh, in terms of the four early voting states that we've really been looking into, it doesn't really seem like these competitors have made much leeway in trying to cut off his uh, his momentum. Uh, you know, he leads by about 25 to 30 percentage points in all of these states. Uh, the latest Iowa uh, Des Moines Register poll showed that he had over 50 percent of the support from likely caucus goers. And so the way that DeSantis has tried to bet big on Iowa really makes it seem like uh, they're trying to cut him off early. You know, meanwhile, Nikki Haley's trying to make the argument that in New Hampshire and South Carolina, she can really make leeway. And, you know, polling shows that she's within striking distance to Trump. So if anything, you know, I don't think we're going to see it very early on. But there is a chance we'll see some movement likely after New Hampshire, maybe South Carolina. All right. It, well, after New Hampshire, I, I'm, I'm curious about New Hampshire. Because as you said, if you look at polling averages, if you look at a lot of polls, solid lead for Donald Trump. We are going to talk in a, a little bit, a few minutes, to Chris Galdieri out of St. Anselm College, which has probably one of the best-looking polls lately for Nikki Haley, uh, 44 to 30, down 14 points. I think that plays into the call by New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu for Chris Christie to drop out. In that poll, Christie got 12%. It doesn't entirely make up the whole difference. I, I, I mean, it, it seems we're getting close enough, obviously, to these early primaries, so there's pressure to consolidate. Uh, I, I mean, does that make a difference? Is this a matter of, uh, especially in New Hampshire, is this a matter of Trump opponents not consolidating quickly enough, or is it just an insurmountable lead for Trump at this point? No, I think you have a really interesting point there, and it's something that political operatives have been telling us for months, that you know, with this wide field, it's been almost impossible to cut away at Trump's lead, because there's so many different directions that voters can, uh, you know, go towards. And so, you know, as you point out, maybe there is a chance that in New Hampshire we see some sort of movement that gives Nikki Haley the momentum to make the argument that she is a viable alternative to Trump. But I think the question after these early voting states is whether or not she has enough support in the Super Tuesday states, um, everything else, in order to get enough delegates to get her that nomination. Certainly a, a, an interesting point, how pivotal New Hampshire is for Nikki Haley. If she, if she can't pull off a miracle there, what happens next? Stephanie Lai, national politics reporter with Bloomberg here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to bring in Chris Galdieri, St. Anselm College professor in, uh, in New Hampshire. They've got a poll out recently, uh, just came out. It was conducted uh, December 18th and 19th in New Hampshire. Uh, professor Galdieri, thank you so much for joining us. Top line takeaways here, uh, a 44 to 30 lead Trump over Nikki Haley. Uh, and I'm really interested on your, in, in your take on is there consolidating that can be done among the, uh, the anti-Trump candidates, the non-Trump candidates? Is there a move to be made or does, is there any evidence that this cake is baked and a 14-point lead is very solid for Trump and there's not going to be much more movement? Do you see an opportunity for a challenger in these polling numbers? Um, I think there is an opportunity, but I, I think it's probably a very narrow one. Um, you know, when the greatest news your campaign has had all year is that you're only down by 14 points, um, you know, that that's not necessarily the sign of of a, you know, John McCain style upset in the offing. Um, 
that said, if it's going to happen anywhere, it's probably going to happen here. Um, New Hampshire is a state um, that has had a rocky relationship between Trump and the Republican establishment, such as it is in the state. Um, it's a state that Trump uh, tried mightily to carry uh, in 2016 and 2020 and failed both times. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, you do have a lot of Republicans uh, in the party who have never uh, made their peace with Trump. Um, that said, you know, I'm not sure um, all of the non-Trump vote comes from the same place, um, by which I mean, you know, we, we've talked a lot about Chris Christie and should he drop out. But I think the folks who are supporting Christie are the same sorts of folks who, you know, voted for Bill Weld. Remember him uh, four years ago when he challenged Trump in the primary? These are the folks who are like the really dedicated never Trumpers. Um, and I think the folks supporting folks like Haley are more like the Republicans who, well, they were OK with the tax cuts and they were thrilled with the judges. But do we really want another four years of that? Wouldn't it be nicer to have somebody else and so i'm not sure that those two groups um necessarily come together so uh, that that sounds like a, a a real limit on the ability of nikki haley to get chris christie's votes i, I mean I, I can't ask you to give me a percentage if chris christie drops mm -hmm. out how much goes to nikki haley uh but it, does it go somewhere else is it clear who who specifically benefits if chris christie were to drop out uh which I, of course I'm, I'm raising because of chris sununu's push to get him to drop out Right. And and there's really no logical place. I mean, I guess maybe some of those folks do go to Haley if they see her as the strongest opponent. But I think one of the stumbling blocks for um, this suggestion that Christie should drop out and endorse Haley is, you know, I think Christie is is pretty uh dedicated never Trumper at this point. And I think his concern, um, if he were to drop out and endorse uh, someone else, is is what if that candidate loses? Are they willing to endorse Trump and support Trump? And I think that would be a deal breaker for him. And we've had lots of indications from Haley that, um, you know, she's not going to go all the way to the extent of not supporting Trump if he does uh, wind up with the nomination this time around. Um, I think she's made noises about being willing to pardon him for various offenses as well. You know, these are these aren't the sorts of things you say if you're prepared to throw the guy overboard uh, if uh, if you lose to him. So I just I think bringing those those different groups of of you know never Trump Republicans and lukewarm on Trump Republicans and pro Haley Republicans, um, it's it's just you know. It's it's not as straightforward as simply, OK, Christie has 12. We add his 12 to Haley's 30. Suddenly we've got a 44-42 race. Tell me a little more about the identity of the New Hampshire Republican primary voters specifically. I'm thinking of somewhat of a, a libertarian bent, but I, I mean, you, you touched on it with Trump's history there. What do we learn about Trump's place or any candidate's place in the broader Republican field based specifically on this New Hampshire Republican primary electorate? Yeah, um, New Hampshire Republicans are are really something of an outlier uh, in the National Party these days. 
Um, as you said, the party has a real uh, libertarian bent to it. Um, you see that on issues like abortion. You see that on issues like uh, labor unions. You see this on issues like same-sex marriage and transgender rights and that sort of thing. It's not that the Republican Party here is overwhelmingly in favor of those things, but you have enough Republicans who, for instance, are pro-choice or who um, oppose right-to-work laws, um, who are supportive of transgender rights, uh, that it makes, um, you know, you know, sort of wholesale culture warring uh, that you might see in other other states, Republican parties. Um, it makes it a lot harder to pull off here. Um, you, the folks, the folks here who are Republicans, a lot of them tend to be much more in the sort of old guard Yankee Republican uh, mold uh, than they are uh, with, uh, you know, um, uh, rhetorical bomb throwing, uh, culture warring um, sorts of Republicans that you see um, increasingly in other parts of the country these days. Well, it may not be a perfect case study uh, for obvious reasons on the impact, if there is an impact, on uh, of Nikki Haley's comments, her back and forth on the Confederacy, the cause mm -hmm. of the Civil War, first not mentioning slavery and then saying, of course, slavery was the, the issue, the primary issue. Uh, your, the St. Anselm poll was conducted before that back and forth. Uh, I mean, just under with your understanding of the voters, the numbers at play there, would you expect her to take much of a hit among New Hampshire Republican primary voters based on that flub? I think there's a little bit of a hit. Um, I think she has time to recover. Um, I think what was um, dangerous about that um, for her is that, you know, this is a question everybody knows the answer to. It's slavery. Homer Simpson knows the answer to that question. If you remember the episode where he was helping Apu pass his citizenship uh, test. Um to not say slavery and then try to say, oh, well, it was the federal government overstepping its bounds and everything. Nobody believes that she believes that. So I think it looked like pandering. It looked like pandering to an audience that isn't really present here, but might be uh, more of a factor um, in subsequent contests. Um, and I think it, it just sort of, you know, a, a big part of her pitch has been, look, I'm a truth teller. I'm going to be a straight shooter with you, that sort of thing. And then to um, completely flub what caused the Civil War um, is, is just, you know, not a great look. That said, um, I think this is probably something that uh, reporters cared about more than voters. Um, and, you know, my guess is that when people finally vote uh, three weeks from today, um, that there will not be a whole lot of voters who, you know, go into the voting booth and they're prepared to fill in the circle for Nikki Haley and say, oh, but wait, she said something uh, silly about uh, the Civil War back in December. I think that voter right. is, is, you know, one guy named Phil. Uh, <laughs> real quick before we have to go, uh, do you, do you, can you make a prediction yet? Who's the real front runner in New Hampshire? Um, I think the real front runner is still Donald Trump. Um, you know, and I say that because as much as we've had some good polls for for Haley, um, the good polls have her, you know, down by 14 points. Uh, we haven't seen a poll that has her in the lead. We haven't seen, I don't think we've seen a poll that has her within single digits of Trump. Um, so I think the challenge for her is, can she get herself into first place? And if she can't get herself into first place, can she get the kind right. of really close second place finish? Um, when the good news could keep her alive. Is that you are down 14. It's not very good news. We're going to keep it going in just a minute with Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano on our panel. This is Bloomberg.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Harvard President Claudine Gay will resign this afternoon. Uh, The latest from the Harvard Crimson saying it will be the shortest presidency in the university's history. And, of course, this is really not limited to uh, a Harvard story, uh, a campus politics story. This, I, I think, and we'll see what the, the the panel thinks, but I think clearly comes on the heels of last month's exchange in Congress, uh, pressed by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik on whether calling for a quote-unquote intifada uh, violated the campus's anti-harassment policy. Uh, it was a question that several uh, presidents of universities were not prepared for, clearly, including uh, Claudine Gay. Let's go to the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano here uh, for some insights on what seems to be, uh, to me, a bit of a proxy for the difficulty of handling the politics of the Israel-Hamas war and the U.S.'s deep interest in it uh, that also seems pretty tough for President Biden. Uh, Rick Davis, let's start with you. What should we read into, uh, given the fact that somebody's losing their job over the the difficulty of answering questions about not only this conflict, but uh, anti-Semitism in the U.S., uh, U.S. voters' support for different factions? Um, this, To me, this seems to spell bad news for President Biden, because people are uh, in in serious trouble. But what 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 is your takeaway in the broader picture uh, with today's news about uh, Claudine Gay? Yeah, I think you make a good point about how does all this roll up to politics on a national level. We're in the middle of a presidential campaign. It is the season, and and I think with 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 the point you make about President Biden. You know, he has a lot at risk because the coalition of Democrats that make up the Democratic Party 
is 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 probably more adversely affected by uh, what's going on in the Middle East right now than the Republicans are. Republicans generally are are aligned with their support uh, for Israel, right? And so so once you get sort of straight on that, uh, there's not a lot of complication. Democrats, however, have a much different, much more diverse uh, constituency, uh, and we see it in places like Michigan. Uh, with a very large uh, uh, Arab population, Muslim population, uh, that are going to affect the potential outcomes of a Michigan uh, election uh, as it relates to uh, as it relates to President Biden, and and it's a key swing state. Uh, Harvard, clearly a bastion of Democratic liberalism <laughs> within the Biden administration, uh, and so when 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 something controversial happens there. It, it it reverberates through that administration. And, and, and I think Claudine Gay had a lot of other problems besides her uh, very poor uh, uh, appearance at the uh, House of Representatives before the holidays. Uh, but ultimately, that is the, the stone that, that, that broke uh, the window. And, and I, I think it shows us that this is still a very salient situation, very salient issue with, with American opinion makers, but also voters. Jeannie Shinzano, I, I, I have to ask you about especially the pressure from from both sides, on both sides of the issue for President Biden in particular, because it, it and, and we'll we'll analyze polling over time on exactly how motivating it is uh, as an issue for pro-Israel voters, for I think younger Democrats who are uh, calling for uh, not only a ceasefire, but in some cases the U.S. blocking off aid to Israel. Um, where does this leave President Biden and, and and is he in an, an impossible position because of, of the pressure coming from multiple angles? You know, I, I'm not sure I would join together her decision to resign under pressure, obviously, as you talked about uh, so much with President Biden. Um, you know, I look at this um, is specific to what was happening with Claudine Gay. You know, she did survive her really out of touch performance before Congress her equally out of touch emails to the student body. But in the end, she lost support amongst the faculty, amongst administrators, and importantly, students. Some of the best reporting on this story have come from Harvard students, so kudos to them. And the calls over the last few days for her resign in the wake of this plagiarism allegation, and it wasn't just one or two, it was multiple. And you have students who have just gone through finals. They have signed these Harvard honors code with their faculty. And then to hear over and over again that the leader of the academy herself is charged with plagiarism became too much for Harvard to bear. So, you know, this to me is specific to Claudine Gay, to, you know, the out of touch experience with Congress, certainly, but essentially to what was happening behind the scenes at Harvard as she was charged with these allegations. President Biden has a separate issue, which is the issue of support for Hamas, which has been a long-standing issue on the Democratic side with liberals, and Rick rightly talked about Michigan, um, that is going to be something he has to contend with. At this point, I'm not certain we can say it will impacting at the polling booth because history shows very few Americans vote on the basis of foreign policy. The question in my mind is, is there enough 
to change support in a critical state like Michigan? I think that's a fair question. And I think we have seen the president. He went out on a limb to call out Benjamin Netanyahu. He has not been happy with how the prime minister has handled himself. So I think he is responding to some of that already. And we'll have to take a wait and see attitude if liberals hold this against him and decide to vote third party or just stay home, which in a state like Michigan would impact him. Well, let's talk. A, let's take a, a broader look uh, at President Biden's struggles here, or his, his very tough position. Uh, looking at the USA Today Suffolk University poll that just came out today, published this morning, uh, President Biden currently has support from 63% of black voters. That compares to 87% in 2020. He actually trails Trump in this poll by five percentage points. He won by a 33-point margin in 2020. I'm looking at young voters. This poll has Trump ahead among voters under 35 nationally, 37 to 33 percent, a narrow lead. Uh, That is taking 2020 numbers and and flipping them on their heads uh, in some cases. Jeannie, um, I, I don't know if we can say this is indicative of every poll that's going to come out and every crosstab that shows us where he stands uh, with, uh, with young voters and non-white voters, but this looks like a very, very bad position. Uh, how much work does President Biden have to do among black voters, among Hispanic voters, and among young voters? It is so important. This is what I think is the most critical aspect of what's coming down the pike for him over the next year. Donald Trump in particular, but the Republican coalition more broadly, has been making great strides. The group I look at most often are Latinos. You add to that African-Americans. You add to that, as you mentioned, young people. Joe Biden, any Democrat, cannot win if Republicans are making the gains Trump has with that group. I mean, I think what we are starting to see, quite frankly, is a realignment of the parties. And you are seeing a populist um, group forming. And there are Latinos, African-Americans and young people part of that on the Republican side. If that keeps up, that's a problem for the Democrats. And, you know, it reminds me, remember 0812 when when uh, Republicans lost they did this great, you know, piece looking back. What do we have to do now? We have to make up with Latinos. That was the big takeaway from that. And nobody thought Donald Trump, of all people, would do that with his comments on undocumented immigrants. And yet he has. We've known that's a problem for Democrats, and it continues to be. And this poll is so important out of USA Today, showcasing just that. Rick, uh, sorry to put you in a tough position, but what's the 22nd version of what Donald Trump did to improve his standing with black, Hispanic and young voters? You know, look, he's not he's not Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden's the issue here, not anything Donald Trump did. And Joe Biden has not done enough to create opportunity for these young voters. Uh, The economy is everything to them. And it's been, uh, you know, really bad for the entire term of his presidency. In this poll, there's some optimism to be had, but Uh, for the Biden people, but they've got a long road to hope. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. 
Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 2024 means election year is officially upon us. We're now just over 11 months away from November when voters will head into the booth to decide who they want to be president of the United States. Of course, a lot could happen between now and then. We do still have to get through the Republican primary race, even though Donald Trump at this point is seen as the presumptive Republican nominee and incumbent President Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee. And yet when you look at polling, they consistently show that U.S. voters would not like to see the 2020 rematch that is taking shape here. They want someone else that isn't Biden or Trump. And then also polling continually shows that the incumbent president is dealing with a bit of an approval problem as he heads into this election year. So we want to get more on that now. I'm pleased to say joining me here in our D.C. studio is Mohammed Yunus, who is the editor-in-chief of Gallup. Mohammed, great to see you. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. I'm not sure that President Biden is feeling particularly happy as he comes into this new year, knowing he ended last year 2023, according to Gallup's figures, with an approval rating of just 39%. Can you give us some context around that number? It's, it's quite low. It is quite low. It's a couple points higher than his previous reading. But I think the real context is compared to every other president in modern history who has sought re-election, he's far behind where they were. Um, traditionally speaking, what we've seen in our numbers is that a president going into a re-election campaign at that 50-point mark is a really critical number to be at. And obviously, President Biden is far beyond behind that, but he's also significantly behind where Barack Obama was and where Donald Trump was, which is pretty important to note, I think. Um, during the Trump campaign, there was so much focus on how low and steady the number stayed. And President Biden right now is behind where President Trump was. Well, and you talk about the numbers staying low and being pretty steady. Isn't that the case with Biden? I mean, he's been in, in and around that kind of 40% figure or below for for some time now, and it doesn't seem like that has that needle has moved to, to any real degree at all. It hasn't. He started off like most presidents do in a honeymoon phase. He has that 57% approval, which is pretty high uh, for in our era. Mm. Another thing, Kaylee, to always keep in mind with these numbers specifically is we are in tr what is truly is a hyper-partisan era. So since President Obama, the difference between people's um, views on the president and how closely it's tied to their party ID is stronger than ever. So presidents have had flatter 
um, sort of frequencies on their approval ratings. Mm -hmm. But I think what's concerning about President Biden's situation is that even compared to Obama and Trump, who also face that reality, he's significantly behind right now. Well, you talk about party ID. Are we seeing changes in that as well? I know Gallup's done done some work around this, the idea that people are just changing the way they identify politically yes. in these hyperpartisan times. Absolutely. And you opened up by saying, you know, there's a lot of potentially unpredictable things can happen. <laughs> One of the really big changes that's happening in America is this heightened and sustained number of people who are identifying as independents. So mm -hmm. today, 41% of Americans say that they identify as independents. Um, it's basically half of that for Democrats and Republicans. So party image is not really great in the public right now. Um, a broader data point I think that really drives that home is uh, we just released our latest on satisfaction with the electoral process in the United States, 71% of Americans say they are dissatisfied. So there are so many data points I can go through to really draw the picture of how people are not particularly pleased with <laughs> neither the options they have, how the parties operate, or how the system operates more generally. Okay, well, let's talk about the options. I mentioned that we're seeing in pretty consistently in polls that the majority of voters would prefer it not to be a Biden-Trump rematch, like 2020 all over again. And yet that's likely what they're going to get, unless there is a viable alternative. What are you seeing around support for a third party candidate, who, whoever that is? Well, I can tell you who we see in terms of favorables of mm -hmm. all the folks that are out there right now. Um, President Biden and Trump are basically tied at 41% of a favorable rating. And this is, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of the following person? Um, DeSantis, Haley, and um, and uh, and DeSantis, Haley, in specific, sorry, are at their 30, so really low 30% favorable rating. Mm. It's important to note that this tends to happen with new names. People don't know who they are. Um, Kennedy, on the other hand, is already breaking the 50-point mark, but that's probably because of that name recognition mm -hmm. factor that he has in his favor. So looking at the favorable ratings, which is really a really good proxy, I think, at this point of the contest to see who's gaining traction with the public, Really, none of them are. Nobody's really shot through the roof um, and impressed or wowed. Of course, January 15th is just down the street. Yeah. Um, a lot can change, uh, particularly when those first results start coming out from the caucuses. But right now, nobody's dominating. Well, and ultimately, this all comes down to what the voter is feeling as they head to the polls when they're making that decision who they're going to cast their vote for. So whether this is feeding into what is making people disapprove or approve of President Biden or just how they're thinking heading into an election year, where are they ranking their priorities? What does the American voter care about the most? The American voter always and forever cares about the economy when they the come to The economy is stupid. It's so always the, the economy. <laughs> I love to use this line. It's becoming kind of cheesy to repeat this, but the economy is not only king, it's king, queen, and bishop. It is everything in when Americans go to vote. Now, of course, sitting here with you, of all people at Bloomberg, <laughs> the economy is light years away um, in terms of predicting where it'll be in November. We have so much to happen, really, from now till then. So it's not easy to predict who's going to be the winner on that topic, but that topic tends to be the most important topic. I want to caveat that, though. One thing that's really interesting that's happening, particularly with President Biden, is the conflict in the Middle East. And what we've picked up in our numbers and what we've seen on streets and protests and conversations within the Democratic Party is there really is a split uh, with younger, more liberal Democrats 
on where they want to see President Biden um, on the issue specifically of how to handle the conflict, how to end the conflict. Um, so that's an important factor. And, you know, it will probably be with us for most of this year, I think, even if not through November. So it's an important topic to keep in mind, but it's probably not going to trump the economy. Well, I'm glad you, you point that out because young voters are part of the demographic groups that helped propel Biden to victory in 2020. There are others at play here as well, black and Hispanic voters, for example. And yet we're also seeing that increasingly those voters are turning more away from President Biden. So how are you looking at different demographic groups here, young people being one, but others as well? Absolutely. I think it's particularly interesting to look at young people and non-white Democrats. And what we see on those numbers, particularly when it comes to the Middle East conflict, is mm -hmm. they have a very different perspective on what they want to see happen, how much they support the president's current policies. Um, you know, the economy is important to those voters as well. And they tend to have a very different perspective on when the economy is working or not working. Um, another thing that's really important is the most important problem, according to the American public, and I say this so many times, you know what I'm going to say, <laughs> is poor government and poor leadership. And with younger and minority voters, that tends to actually be a very powerful and resounding issue for them. So the more that those voters continue to feel that they're dissatisfied with the process, that they're frustrated with how government operates, that they view government as the most important problem facing America, the less that's going to help an incumbent president, even if he is a Democrat. It's, I want to dig into this idea that you were mentioning about how the president is handling Israel and Palestine and how that's divisive among among his democratic base. We obviously had news today, Claudine Gay is resigning as president of Harvard. There's been a lot of backlash for testimony she gave in Congress last month, but also just on what has been happening on Harvard's campus uh, in regard to anti-Semitism and, and this conflict or at odds, people seem to be feeling of support for Israel on the one hand and support for Palestinians on the other. And that's not just true at Harvard. We've seen this, you know, really across the country at this point. On the Israel and Hamas conflict in particular, what is the data, what is the polling telling you about where America is on this? America split. Um, we did a poll, just asked people um, how they felt about the current fighting happening in um, Israel and, and Hamas and Gaza specifically, and whether they support what's happening in terms of military operations. America's 50-45, 50% of Americans say they support what Israel's doing militarily, 45% say they don't. And that's actually pretty notable. Mm -hmm. um, I should say, even before this latest conflict ensued, this split among Democrats, particularly young and minority Democrats, on sympathies towards the Israelis versus the Palestinians has been growing. This is not something that sort of is taking place now because there's a war between Hamas and Israel. It really has been something that's building sustainably at least for the past seven to eight years. Mm -hmm. um, so this conflict really um, triggered you know, that tinder that was already there and building among liberals, um, and in particular, kind of the left wing of the Democratic Party. And we continue to get news on it each and every day. Some other news that we're actually still waiting for today, Mohammed, relates to former President Trump uh, and his myriad of, of legal issues. On the one hand, he's due to have a reply in the D.C. Circuit Court in regard to the uh, presidential immunity case. On the other, we're waiting to see if they file for appeal in the Supreme Court of the Colorado decision to keep him off the ballot uh, on the grounds of the 14th Amendment. 
what role does do the courts play for the American voter? Do they trust the courts to be making these kind of decisions when it comes to a presidential candidate? It's an amazing question. Um, basically, right now, the Supreme Court sits at a historic low in terms of public confidence. Um, I should say, though, that most national institutions are sitting near or at record lows. So certainly the Supreme Court is not the arbiter of all of these cases. But aside from the courts and people's attitudes about them, what we've learned through the past two years is that basically very few of these um, legal developments have impacted President Trump's support with his base. So I don't expect a big shift in public opinion. I think what's really more critical to follow is whether or not some of these legal challenges develop into a situation where it's not really feasible for him to be a candidate in some of these contests. And I think that's really where things could change. But sort of waiting for supporters to, to, to peel off because he's facing yet another legal challenge, we just haven't seen support for that in the data all these past two years. Yeah, so it may come down to whether or not he actually is on the ballot, whether that Colorado ruling um, holds up. Obviously, the Supreme Court is going to have to make some decisions in regard to Trump, many of them uh, in all likelihood, but they're also going to be dealing with some other issues in this term in, a, in an election year, one of them being Mifepristone, access to the abortion pill. We know the effect that the overturning of Roe v. Wade of the Dobbs decision, the impact it had in 2022 in the midterms. If they were to make another ruling against abortion rights like that, do you think it would have the same potency in 2024? Are we still seeing abortion showing up as a galvanizing issue for the American voter? We're still seeing abortion showing up. It's fascinating that you bring up Mifepristone because like Roe v. Wade, Mifepristone tends to be something that the majority of Americans support access to. So six in 10 Americans actually support people having access to that drug. If the court were to overthrow a, a decision or take a decision that takes that away, um, yeah, it'll probably have some kind of a negative impact on perceptions of the court with folks who share that view. Now, it's really rare to get six in 10 Americans to agree on anything when it comes to abortion. That's really what was unique about mm. Roe v. Wade. Even though um, it was challenged in many ways, I went to law school hearing about how it was policy and not law. I mean, there have been a lot of people have criticized that decision, but it had public support. And I think that's what really drove the, the change in the public confidence in the Supreme Court. And we saw that in their assessments of the court itself. We saw that in an elevated number of people saying that abortion was a really critical issue for them when they vote. We saw that and continue to see that in the currently elevated rate of people who are identifying as pro-choice after that decision came out. So yes, it's still with us. And if there is another landmark decision, it'll bring it right back to the fore and it's a potent issue. All right. We only have about a minute left, Mohammed, but we've discussed, we've covered a lot of ground here in what 2024 may bring, how, how people are feeling. What is other one other trend or something that you'll be focusing on in 2024? I think for us, it'll be the election. It'll mm -hmm. be what people are really tuning into for um, making that decision to cast their vote. One thing we really know right now is most Americans are still totally checked out. They're not <laughs> focused on political news, as unlike you and I, what? night and day. Yeah. I know, it hurts my feelings too. But um, as it gets closer to November, that number is going to rise, and we're going to start asking people, what do you bring into mind when you cast that vote? It's a good point. I feel like we've been living and breathing this for a year now, but really it's still early days. Mohammed Yunus joining us, Gallup's editor-in-chief. Thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.